Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we will be discussing marketing for freelancers. And with me is, as always, Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And I am Ruben Lerner. So, Eric, let's start at the top. What is marketing? Well, given that these days my business is actually running a marketing business, I some thought that I put into this definition. I think in the broadest sense, like if you were to go look up marketing, and I've done this before, the kind of like canonical definitions of it are really vague. Uh, you want to raise awareness of your brand and product or service. And in the case of freelancing, we're talking about service. So marketing is generally, you know, creating awareness of you and the service that you offer. But the definition that I like to add on to it is you're creating awareness of what you do in such a way that lets people self-serve as to understanding whether you're a fit for them or not. So here's like a tangible example of that. Like, let's say that you're a C-sharp.net web developer. In your marketing of yourself, you would want to make it clear who you can help and you can't, at least in terms of tech stack. So it would be a waste of time if somebody was really looking for a Ruby on Rails engineer to come in and do work and they got on the phone with you to discuss a Ruby on Rails project when you're a C-sharp developer. So what I mean by the self-service is you'd have up on your site that you're a .NET developer. That way, the person looking for uh, Ruby on Rails help wouldn't even bother to call you because you wouldn't want them to. It would be a waste of time. So that's what I mean about self-serving. So you're, yes, raising awareness, but you're also letting people make decisions about whether you'd be a good fit to help them or not. That's kind of how I define marketing anyway. Anything you'd like to add or dispute? <laughs> No, that makes sense to me. I always had a big like question, like, why do people talk about marketing and sales? Aren't they the same thing? And it took me a very long time, first of all, to understand that like from a company's perspective, when I speak with one of my clients or even with like someone I'm buying things from, when they say they're calling from the marketing department versus they're calling from the sales department, these are completely different departments and they're doing different things, even though they're obviously complementary. So it took me a long time to understand that they were different. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But I figured, oh, well, marketing is just like part of making a sale, talking to someone. And it's not. It's letting people know who you are, what you do. Like I know part of Apple's marketing is what they make. And nowadays they make a wide variety of products, but they're all around computers, style, phones, that sort of thing. Right. If I wanted some sort of new flavor of bottled water, I know that's not an Apple's wheelhouse. Although, you know, <laughs> with the rate they're growing and looking for revenue, you never know. <laughs> I think your point about knowing what people do and don't do and be able to identify that is really important because it allows them, and this is, refers back to what we were talking about with Philip, you know, in the last episode, where it allows them to say, oh, I know this person does this. It sort of like helps you to identify what is that niche that someone is in. It's like that guy, I think I even mentioned this last week, who looked at me at the train station and said, oh, you do Python training. Like I was sort of closely identified with what I do. And that doesn't mean I was explicitly marketing. It doesn't mean I was taking out billboards all over Israel saying, you know, Ruben does Python training. It means that over time, my name, image, association became clear and clearer to my target market. And that's a great place to be because it means when someone has a problem that is in your wheelhouse, you're more likely to be sort of a target for them to call. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like the idea of this separation of awareness and like commercial intent or purchase. Especially like in talking about the difference between marketing and sales, 
like a, an answer to that that I've cultivated a lot as we help clients with their marketing. And actually, as I've presided over hit subscribe sales, which these days, mercifully, I've, I've backfilled. So we have somebody doing sales, <laughs> but I spent a lot of time in the trenches there. And here's at least my take on the idea of marketing versus sales and how you would differentiate is if you think of what I see called the buyer journey, which can be sort of an overloaded BSE term if you're not careful, but it really kind of is a journey in this sense, which is that the moment that somebody becomes aware of you or your brand or your offering is actually very rarely the moment that they're going to make a purchase. Meaning if you think about where you encounter a brand or a product or an idea, it's actually surprisingly rarely when you're looking for that exact thing. So the counter example is if you go on the internet and you Google like buy light bulbs, you'll see a bunch of like light bulb brands come up. And I think of that as kind of a yellow pages search, like mm-hmm. hearkening back to the days of you know phone books and stuff where I'm going to go look up the thing I want to buy and then I'm going to buy it. But that's not actually how a lot of transactions take place. And crucially, that's how really low value transactions take place. It's not how people buy like application development from a freelancer. Usually what happens is, you know, maybe a good example of this was my own journey in buying a Snuggie for my wife. It was like that blanket robe novelty thing. There was a moment when I saw a commercial for a Snuggie. I wasn't looking for blankets or gifts or anything at that time, but I saw that commercial. It kind of stuck in my head. Maybe I saw a few more commercials over the course of time, and it got me to remember the Snuggie at the moment when I was looking for a Christmas gift for my wife and thinking like, oh, that's a thing she would like. So anyway, this is a long way of kind of explaining this journey is really where the difference between marketing and sales, I think, lies. Marketing is getting people's attention and then holding their attention until such time as they're actually in the frame of mind to go research you and make a purchase. Sales is once they've decided they're in that orbit that they might buy from you. Sales is the process where you start answering their questions, you have a conversation with them, you try to convince them to buy or if you know, they're not a good fit not to buy. So that's loosely how I think of it, I guess, the long version. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I completely agree with you. So like a few years ago, I decided I was going to start to venture out and teach courses online to individuals, not just do my corporate training, but start doing it online. I said, I know lots of people want to learn Python and I've been doing it for a while. So I'll just start advertising an online Python course and I'll charge, I don't know what I want, like $500 for it and people will sign up and that's good as gold. And not surprisingly, no one signed up. And uh, I remember talking to Brennan Dunn, who has a lot of great resources for freelancers out there. And he was like, people aren't just going to sort of see a random guy's name, because as far as they're concerned, I was random. See a random guy's name on the internet, say, oh, he teaches Python, I want to learn Python, and plunk down $500. You need to build a relationship. And so a lot of what marketing is building that relationship so that when they're ready to buy, they say, oh, well, I could go to a whole bunch of different places, but I'd like to go with a person where I feel like I know who they are. I know their style. I know what it's like, right? I mean, I'll use Apple again as an example. People who buy Apple products tend to buy many other Apple products. Why? Because they say, well, I feel like it has a certain quality, a certain sense to it, a certain aesthetic. And I like that. And I want to have other things like that in my life. Not everyone. I have an Android phone, (laughs) but a Mac. Whereas my wife has an iPhone and a Windows PC. Heaven knows how that happened. But most people are more normal than we are. Yeah, I think that the idea of a relationship, I really like that because whatever that relationship might be, you do have one. So for Apple, I think there's a lot of relationship with customers around kind of the brand aesthetic and like 
it's perceived as a luxury brand or what have you. So like the relationship Apple builds with a lot of its customers is that you're an Apple person. Mm -hmm. So that's one form of relationship building and trust. I think in where hit subscribe helps people market, like in the dev tool space, a lot of that is you put up a lot of tutorials on your site you get known for that. People keep landing on your site. You're helping them do things. You're building trust. I think that's a common one. You might build a relationship with them like the way I did with a lot of people that bought my books over the years and such, which is I essentially wrote an editorial column. So maybe it was trust, but also like I entertained them. They like reading my blog post. Whatever that relationship is, that's the precursor to sales. And I would say like the difference between sales with no marketing and sales with excellent marketing is sales with excellent marketing is a lot easier. When Apple drops their next phone, they've got a legion of people out there that are already going to buy it. They don't have to go out from scratch and convince people that Apple makes good phones. Likewise, when I had been writing for a lot of years and I came out with a book, a lot of my audience was like, yes, I believe in this. Whereas if you just wrote a book with no marketing apparatus and tried to sell it, you might be taking out ads. You might have really low conversion rates. And here's a good example that, that people watch and can put in their head as to like, when does something go from marketing to sales? It can be a little fuzzy. And depending on the nature of your business, you might define this slightly differently. But for a lot of SaaS brands, for instance, it goes from marketing to sales when a person indicates that they want a demo, for instance, like a lot of times be a handover between those two business functions. Marketing, I think of as identifying and filtering to get people who would be well-suited to do business with you. And then sales is the part where you're convincing them to do business with you. Absolutely. I'll add another anecdote here because you mentioned a book. So I self-published a book a number of years ago because I knew a few people that self-published books and they had made a killing on it. I was like, oh, well, I can write. I'll write a book. And again, like lots of people want to know Python. And so I self-published my book and I sold like, I don't know, probably a few dozen copies or so. And I was trying to maybe even a, a few hundred copies, maybe. And I was racking my brain over what I'd done wrong. And basically, it comes down to marketing, that no one had a relationship with me or not enough people did. And people aren't just going to plunk down money for it. By contrast, then, when I republished the book with a publisher, it was no longer, who is this random guy trying to sell me an ebook? It was, oh, I know I can trust Manning Books. I have a relationship with them for years. Plus, they can reach people that I would never get to. And so I think before we'd even published the paper book, I'd sold like four times as many copies of the book as I had on my own in total in like several years. So having the relationship there, having someone doing effective marketing, having a large audience really can make a huge difference. Yeah, I can imagine going exactly that way. Like the, the lessons we learn as we go along. Oh, yes. What are the prerequisites then for marketing? Like, what do you need to do in order to set yourself up for successful marketing? Do you need a product? <laughs> do you need a niche? Do you need a product? Do you need a service? Yeah, I think you need, you know, to be offering something of some kind of commercial value. I mean, Modulo, the odd story where a brand builds itself up with a lot of hype and nobody knows what they offer and they have a grand unveiling, but like, don't do that as a freelancer. <laughs> no, <laughs> it won't work. You need venture capital or something for that. Prerequisites for marketing, for me, I think one of the main prerequisites that gets overlooked is some kind of specialty niche or both. And I'm making a distinction there with specialty being like your kind of secret sauce, the thing that you do, and a niche being like an availability in the market, a need in the market. And ideally those two things intersect, but for some people they don't know but you need some kind of unique story to tell, I think, 
Meaning like, let's go back to the C-sharp web developer I was talking about earlier. C-sharp, like your tech stack, I wouldn't think of this as either a niche or really a specialty. And if all you're doing is saying that you'll kind of work with any business of any size and any vertical, as long as it's C-sharp, that gets pretty hard to market. And it's not that you couldn't create content about it or run ads or something, but the thing is that anybody who's looking at that sees kind of an almost undifferentiated commodity. So sure, okay, you do C-sharp web development, but so do, you know, 2 million other people. So I think personally that you need some kind of a unique angle or the marketing becomes like boiling the ocean. Uh, with Hit Subscribe, I've had custom app dev agencies come and say, can you help us, you know, bring in search engine traffic? And the struggle there is, sure, about what? Who, who are these searchers? <laughs> what, what are they searching for where you want to be in front of them? Are they searching for C-sharp tutorials? Because why do you want to talk to other C-sharp developers if you're trying to sell services? Are you trying to get in front of CIOs? The best you could do is maybe like C-sharp consultancy. So it gets really tough versus if you're really uniquely positioned, like you're doing C-sharp web development, but for specifically nonprofits that are looking to backfill an access database, like, you know, we have something in access and we want to modernize. Well, now you can write tutorials about MS Access, you can write tutorials about that migration. You can create a lot of thought leadership content in that space. You can talk in expert fashion about it. You know, actually, as I'm kind of working my way around this idea for prerequisites, I think it's really the idea of that expertise, the moat that Philip talked about, like in order to build trust, in order to build a relationship, you have to have something kind of compelling to talk about. So I think, yeah, like some kind of specialty is a big one. Yeah, especially if you're a programmer, you tend to think of the language as like the thing everything revolves around. But it's not. It's a means to an end. What if someone asked you what you do and you said, oh, I do English? Be like, what with English? <laughs> oh, well, if you need something done with English, I'm your guy. And you're like, well, can you narrow that down? Are you going to like argue a court case or are you going to write a contract or are you going to like write some jokes? <laughs> And so it sounds absurd because it is kind of absurd. But if you say, oh, I know how to write contracts for manufacturing plants that are doing it, like the more specific you can get with that, the more people be like, oh, I need that or I don't. And then you know who you're marketing to and how you're marketing it. And so try to sort of hit that. And then in some ways, the marketing almost writes itself or does itself because you know what you're offering, you know who you're offering it to, you know what problem you're trying to solve for them. And often... You want to find that pain point. You want to say to people, here is where you are now, but here is where you could be. Mm -hmm. And you could be there with my help. Now, that starts to get into some sorts of sales, but this also puts you in their mind as, oh, if I want to go from A to B, where B is better than A, huh, this person really could help me with that. I'll keep that in mind. And if they see that message again and again, if they see articles, talks, they see your name constantly associated with that, then at a certain point when they do encounter that pain, they're going to reach out to you right away. You sort of become their default option. You know, refining a little bit what you were talking about in terms of persona, like that might be even a bit, so you want a niche or a specialty, but I think a prerequisite for good marketing, drawing on what you were saying there, is that you also need to know who you're talking to. So who is your buyer, or are they a champion, meaning are they somebody that's going to go to your buyer and encourage your buyer to buy from you? But you need to know who you're talking to. And that's why saying, you know, I'll do web development for anyone 
I love your analogy. I'll, I'll use the English language for anyone who needs it. Who are you talking to? Like, who is this person? And you don't know who they are. You don't know what value you can offer them. So there's no good story to tell. And the medium kind of ceases to matter, whether it's ads or blog content or talks. So I think you really need to, you know, have some kind of specialty niche, like who you're helping and to know who that person is, know who your buyer is, and then you're figuring out ways with your marketing, ideally to help them, like that's good content marketing, but if not that, like just making them aware of you and how you can uniquely solve their problems. So I think, yeah, like if you're going to uniquely solve people's problems, you need to know how you're doing that whose problem you're solving is. And I think that's where a lot of marketing falls down. Like if you're just creating content or you're just running ads and there's no differentiation. So it's interesting, you know, just as an aside that we're talking about prerequisites for marketing and we're not saying things like you need social media or you need a website. Marketing existed for an awfully long time before social media and websites. They might be very useful and effective. Right. Although I know there are people who, who would debate that. Probably one of the best marketing companies out there is Coca-Cola. They've been super effective and they've run TV ads for decades. I'm sure they're now online with social media and so forth. But like for years and years and years, they would do advertising in print and on TV, maybe on the radio, just making this association between Coke and feeling refreshed. And so like this sort of, I'm sure, ate into people's minds. So they're like, oh, that's what I want to do. So yeah, like you don't need those things, even though they can certainly be helpful. Coca-Cola is a great example of the relationship building there that you just cited. However you're going to keep that person's attention and mind share, it might be running incessant ads and you might even complain about it. But if you're constantly being told over and over again, Coca-Cola refreshment, when you're standing in the gas station looking for refreshment, that's going to pop into your head. They are preserving that relationship between awareness and, and your eventual purchase. I remember reading some years back that like one of the earliest examples of content marketing was like 100 plus years ago in the very early days of cars. Michelin, uh, the French you know, tire company, they recognized this idea that like people generally in the city of Paris would go out to eat in Paris, but that there were all these restaurants in the outlying suburbs of Paris where you would probably need a car to get to. So what Michelin did was they started their restaurant guide where they were recommending all these great restaurants to go to where you would need a car. And so the content for this tire company, by the way, was a restaurant guide, which seems weird. But hey, you need a car to get there. Oh, and by the way, if you're having a problem of a flat tire, you should buy one of our tires to bring along with you for the trip. And so I think that originally came out as a periodical. Like it's a really interesting, like old school form of marketing, but Whatever it is, capturing people's attention and nurturing them along until they're ready to buy something is the name of the game. Absolutely. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what we do for marketing, various services, what we have done over the years, what we do now. And I know like you do marketing for yourself, you know, hit subscribe. You are a marketing company, so you can go a little meta on this. So what sort of stuff do you do? So before I switched over to running and building this hit subscribe business, I did like the management consulting. And I'm bringing that up only briefly because I did little marketing directly. I had my site, deadtech.com, where I wrote this editorial column. Got a lot of attention and a lot of following, but this was kind of accidental marketing. Maybe I can talk about that idea a little later here. But the main marketing channel for me was word of mouth, which is, by the way, a marketing channel. If you impress your customers so well that whenever somebody's asking for a referral or has a need, they tell people about you, they are kind of volunteering to be your marketing workforce. So early on in my consulting days, it was like inbound stuff. 
mainly word of mouth, people referring me and I get phone calls. And that can work really well for freelancers because you're not typically taking on tons of contracts in a year. So if you just have a handful of people that really rave about you, that's a great channel. With Hit Subscribe, the way that we help customers is generally we are heavily focused on content marketing. So building kind of a flow of traffic to their site, usually through search engine traffic, because it's kind of the most predictable and reliable way to get traffic. So we help them create content with the idea of being people come to their site, get familiar with the brand, and they you know maybe do return visits until such time as they're ready to make a purchase. For our own marketing, ironically, and I think this is a good thing to touch on, Hit Subscribe actually does very little. And the reason for that is because we don't really need to, and I'm not saying this is a flex, but we have a lot of inbound business and referral business, so much so that if we doubled the amount of stuff we had in our lead pipeline, we would put people on a waiting list. So we're not really at the moment looking to spend a lot of money on activities that generate additional leads because we just wouldn't be able to service them at too high a pace. And the reason I like to mention that is, you know, maybe to tee up, especially like later in the conversation, we can talk a little bit about like measuring and such, but marketing is part of your business engine. So marketing and sales is what brings in the customers, your operations and fulfillment is what makes them happy. And then let's not forget the finance piece, which, you know, keeps you in business. So those things all have to line up together. If I can wave a wand and hit subscribe at endless fulfillment capabilities, it would actually probably look similar to freelancer marketing because we're typically doing five and six figure engagements with clients, which is like freelancers. And we would invest a lot in relationship based marketing. So we often help with SEO. That's probably not a play that we would do ourselves. We would maybe look to do talks, write guest posts, go on podcasts. The idea being there that we're getting some attention around what we're doing because, you know, one or two leads generated out of the sources is great. So that's kind of our marketing, I guess, in a nutshell. How about you? What does marketing training courses tend to look like? So I have basically two different businesses running at the same time. One is my B2B business. So I've got my corporate training stuff. And then I've got my B2C business, which is marketing my online courses to people. So the B2B stuff I have more or less given up on marketing and I can afford to do that because so much word of mouth is coming in basically enough that it more than fills my schedule. Also because I'll mention this more in just a moment. I've been an abject failure at marketing B2B so far. (laughs) So I'm lucky that I've been doing this for long enough. And especially in Israel, it's a small enough country where people change jobs. And then I probably get a call like once every, let's call it three weeks or so from a company where they're interested in some sort of course or set of courses. And sometimes it's someone who previously was in my course at their old company and now moved to a new company. Or like, you know, the company says, well, we're going to switch to Python. Does anyone know where we can do some training for it? And someone mentions me. So that's the best, right? First of all, it's very flattering and it feels really great. Like, oh, yes, we heard about you from so-and-so who took your course at such and such a company. And that sort of will naturally happen if you are in the field for long enough, because really in high tech, especially people change jobs a lot and that'll happen. But I tried to do some marketing and I will continue to try to do some marketing for B2B. But so far, it is not at all clear how I've managed to do it or how you would succeed at it. I have some light touches on that, which might contribute to it. And that like overlaps with my B2C channel. 
So I have a very large mailing list, 20,000 per, per people, maybe like 22,000 people now to my email once a week or so. That's part of what I call my better developers list. So they get an article about Python every week. I have a YouTube channel, which I've been increasingly active on. I'm increasingly active on Twitter. I speak at a lot of conferences. And so I don't know what the mix is of influence. My hope is that it affects both. My gut feeling is that it mostly is for B2C, that people then join my mailing list and then they say, oh, I'll take this course, I'll take that course. But I do know, like just what, last week, two weeks ago, I was contacted by a company interested in training. Where did you hear about me? Oh, our head of like, you know, quantitative finance saw you speak somewhere. Now that could be at a conference. It could be on YouTube. Someone else got it because of YouTube. So it's often hard to know where they come from, but all these things sort of help. And so I'm trying to push ahead on all of them, in part because it's kind of fun and interesting to see how it works, in part because it does seem to be getting some results, at least. There's two things that you said there that like, I find kind of interesting to bring up and mention. And one, for people listening, the B2C business seems to act as like lead generation for the B2B business in the sense that those B2C folks, like engineers, for instance, taking the training, can become what's called a champion. And they'll go and tell, you know, the powers that be, you know, a dev manager or something, hey, you should, you know, give this training for everyone in the group. So like, interesting if you can reach a wider audience with people, you know, in your business, in a way that's monetized, that you use as generating leads for a higher ticket offering. But the B2B, I've given up idea of marketing is very similar to like what I'm talking about with hit subscribe. And I think for a lot of people listening, that sounds implausible, or it sounds like, a flex or like what's wrong with you guys. <laughs> but I just want to say, this is the power of positioning and specializing. That's what happens is you become so well known, you solve a problem so repeatedly for so long. Part of it is the fulfillment that you get good at it and people give you rave reviews and they recommend you. And the other part is that, you know, you just become well known solving that specific problem. So people come to you more than you have to go out to them. So there's no magic to it exactly, but if you get really expert at solving the same problem for a lot of people, people will come to you. Let me just respond to both these things. So first of all, I have been expecting that the B2C will lead to B2B for some time now. Mm -hmm. It has almost not happened at all. No kidding. And at first I was like, someone's going to be on my mailing list. They're going to be like, this is the guy we want for our training and we'll be my, I love the term champion. It has almost never happened. And so I've decided to start being more aggressive on this front. And so about twice a year, I email my list and say, hey, if you like my mailing list, if you like my courses, I can come to your company and do training. And it almost always results in nothing or almost nothing. Now, again, I might just be doing it badly or I might be, you know, described the wrong way. But it's been a surprise and a frustrating surprise to me. Hmm. That said, yeah, the word of mouth, it has really grown over the years. And you'd be amazed by like what one person can bring in. So this woman called me, I don't know, a month or so ago and said, I was in your class in my previous job. I'm now like the CTO of a new startup. And I want to order three courses from you, like three courses. Each course is four days. So that's 12 days of work, right? And so that's basically half a month's worth of work, bam, from one company right there. And she said, and if we're happy with these, then we'll probably want to order a bunch more courses for our additional employees as we hire more, as we need more advanced things. And that's a small-ish company or medium-sized company. And so if you get a medium to large-sized company doing that, like as I just got in this phone call like two weeks ago, where the guy said, this is the guy with like the quantitative finance people, he said, oh yeah, like we have 1,200 people who might need this training eventually, which is more or less infinite income <laughs> over infinite amounts of time. 
And since they're in finance, hopefully infinite income for me. But like, how many such clients can you really handle in a year? Not that many, right? I probably have, I don't know, maybe a dozen companies that I do training for in a given year. And it's heavily weighted with two or three of them. So you just need a little bit of word of mouth and a little bit of people being excited about what you do to fill your schedule quickly and easily. I think it's worth, as a brief aside, like calling out for anyone listening, I made an assumption that a piece of Ruben's marketing would work that turns out not to. So I can't tell you how critical it is that you make hypotheses and then measure them. Yes. Because if you just assume, like, if I had, you know, been running Ruben's marketing as a service, if I made that assumption, I would have been dead wrong. And, like, you've got to know that quickly. So, like, it is worth, I think, explicitly calling out whatever you decide to do for marketing. Define success and failure criteria, how you're going to measure it, so that, like, when things aren't working, you can tune, try something different or abandon it, whatever you're going to do. You don't want to just keep doing X in the hope that it will eventually pay off. You need a feedback loop there. Absolutely. Yeah, and I was dead wrong on this too. Again, I might just be doing it wrong, but so far, no dice. By the way, like similarly, I wrote a column for Linux Journal for 20 years, and I was sure that like people would read it and say, wow, we got to hire this guy. Crickets. <laughs> so at least I'm consistently bad at it. So we thought about maybe describing some marketing fails that we've had over the years. So for me, and this is going to sound really weird to people listening, especially if you've been following my site, DedTech, for a long time, but in some senses, I would consider DedTech to be a marketing fail, which is a weird thing to say. It's a site that's earned me millions of page views over the years, built a large following, led to all kinds of consulting opportunities. But the reason I'd consider what I was doing there a failure in retrospect was that from a business perspective, I didn't really have a specific purpose or any of the things I was talking about, like measurables going in. And I do really enjoy writing and creating content, so I don't have any regrets. But to build a following over the course of five years by publishing, say, an average of three articles a week, you're talking about 250 weeks, three articles a week, 750 articles. And I think at this point, I don't know, I've published way over 1,000 articles on that site. If you assume a market rate of about $1,000 an article times $1,000 or 1,000 articles, you know, you're talking about a million dollars worth of labor invested. And pretty sure I have not gotten a return on that. <laughs> you know, the site has led to all sorts of interesting opportunities and stuff, but I've never quantified it. I never really set out with a goal or any kind of specific strategy or approach. So if I look at it as a hobby, it was a very successful hobby that you know, gave me some income and opportunities. If I look at it as a marketer, which I am now, it was an abject failure. I mean, just because of the sheer inefficiency, I would have gone out of business if I were paying someone else to create this marketing. So I think a big failure for me historically is not having a hypothesis or like a game plan for what I'm trying to do. Like, what is this going to accomplish and how do I measure success? is a big one. And I think particularly common in the software world, like for people that are freelancing in engineering, or, you know, just side hustling or even for their careers is I'm going to create tutorial content. I'm going to emulate, you know, such and such developer influencer that has 100,000 Twitter followers. And you wind up chasing these vanity metrics where, sure, these people have a lot of followers, but they're not monetizing it anyway or using it for anything other than maybe to say like, hey, I just got let go from my job. Does one of you 100,000 people have a lead on my next job? which isn't a knock on those people, but it's kind of what I was doing, followers, et cetera, as vanity metrics. I think we tend to emulate what we perceive as success with no real path to profit. So like if you go and do a huge conference speaking tour when you're a salaried employee, 
maybe you're doing that for the love of the game, great. But like, if you are doing that for some kind of gain, like, what is it? What's your profit hypothesis with that? So that's one that I can think of like <laughs> historical marketing fails, just so much effort, so much squeeze for so little juice, if you will. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, in addition to what I previously described, so like, you know, trying to sort of sell courses online without prepping anything, I would say like the beginning days of my mailing list, I just did it badly. And I know it might sound like, how can you do a mailing list badly? I promise you, I did. (laughs) So basically, I was told like, you should have a mailing list because then you can reach people and it's good for marketing. So that part is right. And so I got a bunch of people on my list and then I would write to them. And I'd I'd send some sort of article about Python. Again, so far, so good. And then I would not write for like a month, month and a half or something. And then I'd write another newsletter. I'd say, I'm so sorry, I haven't been able to like write to you. Now, like these people are not waiting around for my email. (laughs) So those who actually then paid attention to like the rest of what I wrote, I guess might have enjoyed the content. But it just was like so weird. And so then I would, of course, like drop off the face of the earth again for like six or eight weeks and write again. Oh, my God, I've been so busy. You can't believe it. And all right, don't do that. Because if you're trying to engender trust, then you need to both write. And you want to use a mailing list. I thoroughly, thoroughly encourage you to use a mailing list. And we'll talk about this a little bit. Write on a regular schedule, whatever that schedule is. And don't apologize. Right. You should be you know, happy to be sharing information with people. They should be happy to getting it from you. Like to start off by groveling, just don't do it. <laughs> Certainly did not get any customers, I'll tell you that much. The other thing is, and this again hooks back to what we were talking about with Philip last week, the moment that I was able to really brand myself as a Python trainer, that sharpened things a lot for me and also in my marketing. Because years ago, I was doing development as well as training. And I was doing it in Python and in Ruby. And oh, you want something in Perl? We can do that too. And oh, by the way, I also do websites and also do some Linux administration and databases. Yeah, I do that too. And if you have another technology, we can do that also. (laughs) Go try marketing that. (laughs) And someone on my team, and he didn't quite get how to do the marketing, but he was more insightful than I was. Someone working for me and he said, what we need to be doing is like selling solutions, not technology. So he like got me a baby step in the right direction. But it wasn't enough because, like, again, I provide solutions. Come on. Like, what kind of nonsense is that? You know, as soon as I started saying I do Python training, it was a sharper message for my potential clients. It was a sharper message for my marketing. as a sharper message for me to understand what I could and should be saying to people. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I do still teach things other than Python, but I sort of get them in a roundabout way. Oh, I teach Git because Git is related to Python because it's open source. You want something about PostgreSQL the database? Oh, sure, because we can use that from Python. So like, it's all sort of very Python-centric, as it were. Yeah, that actually makes me think of something else I think is worth mentioning. I don't know if this was a transgression of mine per se, but you saying once you tighten the message to, I do Python training, things got a lot easier. My hypothesis for why that would be is that once you start saying, I do Python training, what actually forms in somebody's head is, now I understand how I'll benefit from being in a business relationship here. Yes. You do Python training, which means that when I'm done consuming your service, I will be better at Python. And I think a big marketing fail that I see a lot, you know, whether it's Steve Brown founders, like of hit subscribe companies or common across the board with people that aren't marketers is you think that marketing is bludgeoning people to death with how great your offering is and what features it has. Like if you just talk incessantly about your product and how superior it is, then people will submit and be like, fine, you win. (laughs) 
when really marketing is about helping people understand how they'll be better off for doing business with you. Like in the landing page world, there's this idea of like the hero image at the top of the page, or like there's this phrasing around like writing landing pages, like the hero image, the hero story or whatever. What they mean by that is you're casting your buyer as the hero of the story, not you. Yes. There's this great graphic with Mario. Maybe I'll throw it out there as a pick if we can get a link to it, but like where it, it shows little Mario and then a flower and then Mario is throwing fireballs. And it says, this isn't what you sell. And it points to the flower and it says, this is an awesome person that can do cool stuff. And so I think a big marketing fail that a lot of people do is they treat their content, whether it's webinars, like whatever you're doing, as more of a commercial than something that helps the person or creates the impression of how you can help. So I think focusing on your buyer is the good thing. And the, the big mistake is just like endlessly navel gazing about your own offering, especially with freelancers. Like a lot of people, they hang out their shingle and they almost treat their website as their resume. Like, you know, right. oh, I believe in integrity and they go on and they have their about pages, like 20 paragraph origin story about them. And like, I don't mean to be rude folks, but nobody cares. Like you, <laughs> you make it about the buyer, I guess is what I would say there. <laughs> My um, son, who's now uh, almost 16, so I think he was in like third or fourth grade and he had to do this project for class, which was to do an advertisement for potato chips. And I was going to like help him with it. Like and he started saying the potato chips are tasty. The potato chips are crunchy. I was like, okay, here's the deal. You don't want to talk about the potato chips. You want to talk about the emotional experience of having the potato chips. So he like did his assignment. He went to class. He came back. He was like, wow, this was like the best thing. Like the teacher couldn't believe it. Where did you learn this? I said, well, there's this show called Mad Men. (laughs) 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 And like, basically I translated all of Mad Men into like a one sentence thing for a third or fourth grader, but it works. There's a YouTube clip of it where he's showing the Kodak Carousel slide projector and his presentation has nothing at all to do with slides or slideshows. It has to do with memory, with emotion, with impact. And that's where you get people. Now, you don't necessarily want like your clients to have this emotional rush when they see your marketing, although, hey, I'll take what I can get. But like you want them to associate with like positive feelings, success, advancing in their careers. And that's not happening from here are the 10 languages that I know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's go through briefly some different marketing channels people can use to get themselves known. So one of the marketing channels, we made a short list here. One of them that I put down is conferences, user groups, and talks. And I have done this for years, and I have found it is super, super great. In part because, especially nowadays, conferences and user group meetings are often put up on YouTube, which is, if you didn't know this, the second largest search engine in the world. So the moment that your name and some topic is up there, people will see it, people will watch it, people will learn about you, and people will like start to associate you with that topic. So I try to speak as many conferences and many user group meetings as I can, and it has only benefited me. Also, it helps me to like do rough drafts, as it were, of my teaching. So it gives me a sort of double edge there. Yeah, you know, given that we do a lot of like marketing strategy for clients, the the thing I love in particular about user groups is there's a lot of halo effect from the authority you have there. So like you're looking to build trust, you're looking to establish yourself as an expert. If you do something like a talk or a user group, there's social proof because the request for process has vetted you as that. So 
done right, yeah, I think it's a great play. If you're going to do that, one recommendation I have would be to, you know, maybe you even stand up a landing page on your site with the name of the talk. Like you, you want to direct people somewhere to continue the conversation. And that can be a very powerful lead generation source. And I love, by the way, the idea of like repurposing the media. So if you give a talk, it's recorded, you put it online, it's on YouTube somewhere. The more you can repurpose anything you're doing, the more economically your efforts will be. So I guess there would also be other forms of media like blog content is a big one. Creating tutorials, either search engine optimized or shared would be a great way to get the word out as well as you could create content first class for YouTube. So creating video tutorials there, you're trying to build a following. Like video and audio tend to be stickier media, meaning it's harder these days for people to get a following via blogs, especially brands. People follow, I don't know if stickier is the best word, but it has more of a parasocial relationship if they're hearing your voice, if they're seeing you on a video. So create videos for YouTube, uh, appear on podcasts, create a podcast. Like if you're specializing in technical debt, create a technical debt podcast and then like interview people bonus points if they might actually be buyers of yours about their experiences with technical debt and then you're you know creating authority expertise building a following what else ads advertising what do you think about advertising like should people do it and when and what my thought like with advertising is we advise our clients on this a lot and hit subscribe which is if like you're a venture back startup, you just raise a round of funding and you're looking to, you know, get to 100,000 visitors a month by 18 months from now to your site, then let's do an organic traffic campaign together, you know, produce a lot of content. If you need something like that much sooner, advertising is great. So I think of advertising as for some money, you can turn lead flow on and off at will. If you're building a following and building authority, it's a different game. It's a longer game. So I think of like advertising almost as a way to like pinch hit, if you will, until you can build authority. So for new businesses, if you have the money, it's great. It's also, I think, great for experiments. So if you're trying to see if a landing page of yours is convincing, you can generate phone calls, you know, run some ads, see what you can pick up. It is expensive comparably to just using your own elbow grease. You can use elbow grease to create content or even do conference talks and, and all that. You can't, you know, grind your way to having advertising. You have to pay for that attention. What about you? Have you had experience with it? I've done some advertising. I've done a little on Google. It's gone okay, but I haven't really like done the real legwork. If you're going to do advertising, then you need to prep things. You need to set things up in not just in AdWords with Google and choose what you're going to be doing, but then also on the page that they go to so that you can check and monitor it. I've done a, a fair amount of advertising on Facebook, actually, trying to get people to take my free email courses, which then leads them to my main mailing list. And that was actually not too shabby in terms of its success. I don't know, every so often I think, oh, I should try advertising again. But I know that doing it right means actually putting time into it. So it's not just throwing money out the window, because you could very easily do that. Like all the advertising companies, but especially like Google and Facebook, they sort of try to help you out, but you really need to work hard because they will just absorb as much money as you're willing to throw at them. That's a great point. Like if I think about freelancers that are listening here, be careful because like you can, without a lot of prior knowledge, create content on your blog, you can give talks, like you know how to do that. There's a very real thing with any form of advertising that you're doing where you're going to have to DIY a lot of knowledge and procedure around advertising. You don't just call someone up and say like, I want an ad. And they're like, okay, like there is a lot of learning and setup to be done ahead of that. 
What about social media? We touched on a little bit briefly. I mean, as I said, I'm getting increasingly like active on Twitter, and there is a correlation there. I'll also add that like I've been experimenting with some techniques on Twitter. So like not just posting things on my own, trying to figure out like what gets a big reaction. Also responding to people. So I've tried to find tweets that people who have a ton of followers have written where I can maybe add something to the conversation. And what do you know? Like that results in more people following me. Now, what is my end goal here? My end goal is that, you know, if I have 50,000 followers or 100,000 followers, and I do know people in the pipeline world who have that, then I can post about my new book, my new course. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going to buy it, but some subset will. And so it's just a matter of increasing my reach, increasing my marketing, and you know, possibly increasing sales at some point. So I'm mostly active on Twitter, a little bit on LinkedIn. And as I said, I'm building my YouTube channel as well. And there I actually have, I think, seen the most satisfying success because the videos stick around. And so over time, like it's almost like a blog, but it's more easily searchable, findable. And people will comment on things that I recorded two years ago and say, oh, this really helped me. And that just increases its standing. So I'm trying to push mostly at this point on the Twitter and YouTube. Hit subscribe has a pretty perfunctory social media presence. Like we have someone on retainer that does our social media, kind of just to keep it active, engage what followers we have here and there. I have been doing a fair bit of modeling of like what social media campaigns would be like for our clients. And there's a few things that occur to me. Number one, like I guess the dangers of marketing through social media. One is you are subject to, I won't say deplatforming, but like if they change something about the social media platform, your reach can be dramatically reduced. So sooner or later, you know, all the platforms like Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, it used to be a lot easier to post a link and say, hey, go check out my website. Now things that take people off of those platforms, they really deprioritize and showing to people. So the rules of the game can change. It used to be a lot easier to reach people with a Facebook business account. Then they, you know, ratcheted that down to one instead of volume 10 and said, oh, if you want your former reach, you pay us. So there is some danger in using those platforms of being subject to the vagaries of the platform. And also that the like click-through rate or engagement rate per impression is atrocious on social media. So like if you have 10,000 followers and you tweet something, linking back to your website, maybe like four people will do that. You have to do a lot of creation. That being said, for a freelance business, a platform like Twitter can be great for building relationships and driving engagement. So setting aside even the number of followers, if you have like engaged followers and you're active in conversations and hashtags, that can lead to interesting conversations that maybe lead to virtual coffee and phone calls and business. So I think there are great ways to use those platforms. For me, I have backed off on creating any content really on a platform unless I'm going to commit to it and to being good at it. And by the way, that's a significant time investment. The thing I would suggest not doing is what I did for a lot of years, which is write a blog post and then just haphazardly have your Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all accounts just be like, here's a blog post. It's not even worth the nominal amount of time you're spending doing that. So like, I guess what I'd say is those platforms can be extremely valuable, but more and more to cut through the noise on them, you have to like make an effort to get good at them. That's my take anyway. So when I do a blog post, I do like, you know, link to it on those things just because like, why not? And usually it's something. What I have been doing also is on days that I don't say tweet anything. So I'll just put out a tweet linking to one of my old blog posts or one of my older YouTube videos. And that gets some engagement and some new people usually. And it definitely helps to have a comment there, not just here's a link. But like, say what you're linking to and say something about it. And again, engagement is indeed an interaction. It is. 
it's another one too where you'd have to experiment so like different things work better on the different platforms i did a study into this like i gathered some data out of twitter and i wrote a post where i'd done some investigating about like on twitter in particular the per engagement or the per tweet engagement was substantially higher for things that didn't include links versus those that did and there are certain like things to bear in mind. But none of that is to say it's universal. I think the advice I would give is whatever it is you're doing, you know, like if you just go into Hootsuite or whatever you're using, like put in a bunch of links to articles you have and you're seeing zero engagement on them, like stop it, like retool your approach. If on the other hand, you're putting thoughtful comments in, getting people and you're actually getting meaningful referral traffic from Twitter, yeah, do more of that, that's great. And also, like, don't sleep on the effort required to be good at a social media platform. It's a content channel. So, like, it takes a lot of effort to create blog posts. To get on Twitter, build a following, it takes a lot of effort, requires you to actually get good at the platform, which is a thing. You can be good at the platform. Yeah, for sure. I mentioned before that I have a mailing list and that I did it terribly for two years or so. I feel like I've now hit my groove on that. And it's thanks to some suggestions I got from other people and sort of how to structure. So I use Drip, although you can use ConvertKit or just about anything else for this. And I run my mailing list as what's called like an evergreen list. As soon as you subscribe, you get the thank you. And then that Monday, you get issue one. Then the next Monday, you get issue two. The next Monday, you get issue three. No matter when you subscribe, you will get issues one, two, and three. So sometimes I get email from people saying, oh, I just subscribed. I want to know what I missed. You didn't miss anything. I am currently on issue number, say, 170 or so, which means if I do literally nothing, you will get 170 weeks. So what is that? Three and something years of content every single Monday. Now, I have to make sure that it's timeless and evergreen. I and mean, here and there, I've messed up on that. So sometimes I'll get email from people saying, well, your writing is wrong and not only wrong, but out of date. Okay, so then like, sometimes I'll fix it. Sometimes I'll put a note saying when I wrote this, it was out of earlier, whatever. The big question though is, well, wait, if I'm doing this sort of evergreen list, how can I market my current things? And so what I have is, first of all, I have space for a header at the top of my evergreen posts. So if I'm advertising a new course or something, or just want to let people know about something, I'll put that at the top. And so everyone gets that no matter what week they're on. So if you're on week 10 and your colleague is on week 20 and I'm on week 30, we're all going to get that same header. Also, I use broadcasts in my entire list to let them know about announcements. So, hey, there's a new version of my book out. No matter what week you're on, you're going to get that. And people don't notice this. Like, people don't realize that they're on different weeks. Sometimes I'll have someone, like, sign up accidentally on two different email addresses. Then they'll be like, hey, how is this happening? So they're confused. But when I explain it, they like it. And this combination of allowing me to write for my most veteran subscribers, the newest stuff, and knowing that I have all this stuff queued up for the newer people is great because it also means if I take two weeks off, eh, not a big deal. Most of the people are still getting a lot of messages every week. So that's been my strategy with it. And I feel very good about it, actually. Historically, like I have some mailing lists. The one that's most active for me is we send out a weekly curation of side hustles to an email list through Hit Subscribe that has maybe like a thousand people on it. I've never been super active with email marketing, which is kind of funny because the last time I checked, it has the best conversion rate of any you know media that you're going to do. So if you've never set up any marketing infrastructure and you're listening to this, understand that like the engagement rate across the board tends to be pitiful compared to what you might expect. Meaning like on social media, you might get like a 0.3% engagement rate of people who see things on your site. It might be like 1% of people click on a call to action. Your conversion rate for something that you try to get people to do on a mailing list is going to be way higher, as far as I know, the highest of any kind of media. So it's a great play. 
to get people who might be interested to sign up for a mailing list of yours, it's a much deeper form of attention. And I think it circles back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that it's kind of hard to have an emailing list without some kind of specialty, because who are you talking to? So you could maybe use the idea of an emailing list of like, imagine that there's an audience of 100 to 1,000 people, let's say, that hypothetically get on your email list. Who are those people and what are you saying to them? That's a great exercise probably for positioning, and it's certainly table stakes for taking advantage of an email list, but I think that's kind of the holy grail of marketing channels just because it converts so well. Yeah, absolutely. I get responses from people. I feel like I'm in touch with people from around the world and I can talk to them. They feel Mm -hmm. like they know me. It's really a a very nice feeling. Yeah, that's like also like I'd say don't sleep on the ability of an email list to let you do market research. If you create an email list and you're creating content for it, you can periodically slip an email that says like, hey, I've got a question. You know, what would you like to see more of from me? Or like, which one of these three offerings would be valuable? And if you make it easy for people to respond, you'll get responses like, Offering A, B, or C, just send me an email with A, B, or C. And you can use that list quickly to get feedback from your prospective market. Absolutely. I do surveys probably like two, three times a year from my mail list. I use SurveyMonkey. And I just say, would you mind filling this out? I have an intake survey when people sign up for my list. And it's great. I get lots of really interesting information about people, no doubt about it. So before we completely wrap up, so where should people start their marketing? Now what? <laughs> you know, it's a little bit ocean boiling, I suppose. But like, if you've got the positioning, my suggestion would be, especially if you're new to this and haven't done anything, there's all kinds of media that you could pursue. All else being equal, pursue the one where you're not going to view it as a grind to create content. So if you're like me and you really like to write, you know, you could think about the blog as a starting point. If you really enjoy like social media or some particular social media platform, maybe you start there. Whatever the case may be, I think a big thing is no matter which of these channels you're going to pursue, you need to stick with it for long enough to get feedback and understand what's working and what isn't. And you're a lot more likely to stick to something if you don't hate doing it. So for me, I think a big deciding factor would be which of these media am I most comfortable with? Now, mitigating that if you know for a fact that you're marketing to some audience that never would go on Pinterest and you really like Pinterest, like I wouldn't do that. (laughs) But if you feel like you might be able to make some progress in building awareness of yourself on a channel, when everything's equal, pick the channel you like, I would say. And then as a rider to that, when you're going to create content, I would build up a bit of a backlog of content before you start publishing it. Otherwise you risk, you know, the thing you always see where somebody, you know, writes like five blog posts in the first week and then three in the second month and then it just peters out into nothing. Build up some of the content and the muscle memory of doing it before you really start rolling it out. You know, it's funny. I was going to recommend, oh, you should just do a mailing list. It's been so great and so useful. But you make a good point. Not everyone likes to write. They're weirdos. But no, no, no. Not everyone likes to, <laughs> not everyone likes to write. And, you know, not a small number of people have become very successful on, say, YouTube. They can't necessarily write so well, but they're great at video. They present well. So I like the idea of like, yeah, choose something that, that fits your audience and your skills. And also, Right. They'll make it a grind. I mean, I love writing. I really do. And I find it a great way to focus my thoughts and my ideas. But like, if that's not you, don't do it. For heaven's sake, there are lots of people now getting viral attention on all sorts of subjects on TikTok. I actually thought for a very short period of time, maybe I should try doing Python content on TikTok. And then like, I thought about my dancing, my singing, my ability to compress things into one minute. Not the right medium for me. But if you're, you know, like 30 years younger than me, 
which is not hard, then maybe. You said before, like experiment. That's the key. You've got to try things, experiment, see how it goes. Some things are going to be total failures and belly flops, and that's okay. People have short memories. So you're going to try something. I mean, I had an online store that was like pitiful a few years ago. And fortunately, no one seems to remember it. And they just think about the current one. I mean, I certainly try to repress those memories. So <laughs> That's a good point. Like, I think for a lot of people, the idea of putting yourself out there to create content, because so many marketing channels really are going to be about creating content because that's how you're going to get attention. It's how you're going to raise awareness. This is common, I think, with like, I've answered this question a lot with newbie bloggers where they're worried about how they'll look. And there was a quote, I forget, I think it was from the person who built like Twilio's community content engine. And she said something like, if you're not embarrassed by the first content that you're shipping, you're waiting too long. <laughs> and the part of this that I often tell people when I agree with this so much is like, you know, you've just stood up a site, you're starting a blog, you produce an article, what if it's bad? Well, the good news is almost certainly nobody's going to read it. Like you're going to get some reps in there. And if people are getting onto your site in enough volume to like leave you negative comments or something, which will happen when there's significant volume, it's a good problem to have because you probably need to get a thousand eyeballs on a piece of content before somebody bothers to weigh in and tell you anything, even if it's negative. So I would create the content and expect that not everything's going to be a home run, especially at first stick with it and set up like success criteria. Like what are you measuring? You know, so if you want to get the word out about your legacy code offering or something, commit to writing, you know, a certain amount of articles and say like, well, if I write a weekly article for the next year and I promote them in the following channels, I imagine I'll get, you know, five leads out of that or something. So if you define what that looks like, how long you're going to commit to it, what you're going to measure, that'll give you a lot more information along the way as opposed to just saying i'm going to write blog posts as my marketing and hopefully something will happen that is what i did for a lot of years and i would encourage you not to repeat that mistake so i guess in the end what i'm saying is set up like kind of a commitment and define what success and failure look like how you know you need to do something different so i'm going to follow that with something that ties together a whole bunch of things that, that we just talked about now so one of the ways, as I said, I try to get people onto my mailing list is that I have a few free email courses. These are short, like, you know, autoresponders, basically, where you get three, four, five, ten days of email, one at a time, one less at a time. And they work pretty well. I have, I don't know, five of them or something. One of them is a crash course in regular expressions. Um, regular expressions, for those of you who don't know, is this very weird-looking but powerful way for programmers to describe patterns of text. So I want to describe dates. I want to describe email addresses, both of which are horrifically difficult to describe regular expressions, but fine. So I have this email course. I thought, oh, I'll advertise on Facebook my free email course on regular expressions. Everyone wants to know regular expressions, and then they'll sign up, and then they'll get onto my mailing list, and then I can sell them courses. Well, if you advertise on Facebook, you have to let people have comments. And I quickly had this torrent of comments of people who despise regular expressions, had this <laughs> visceral negative reaction to it, and I wouldn't pay anything for this. By the way, it was free. Like, people were furious that I, like, suggesting it. <laughs> so when I was speaking to Manning, after I finished the Python book, we were talking about, well, what would be the topic for my second book? And the acquisition editor said, well, I know that you've written a lot about regular expressions. Maybe you should do that. And I said, I can assure you that no one is going to buy such a book. Thanks to the experience that I had on Facebook. Like, basically, that was my market research before they'll buy them, I think. <laughs> so was it a successful uh, use of my money in advertising? 
Not directly, no. But did it allow me to get a sense of what people are interested in? Absolutely, 100%. Let's move on to picks. Eric, what you got for us this week? Well, just given that they both came up in the conversation, the first one is going to be that graphic with Super Mario. I'll throw a link in there. It's a great way to think about and refine the way you're talking to your audience. And then the second one will be the data-oriented research and article I wrote about marketing to engineers on Twitter. So that's what I've got this week. Okay, so I have two or maybe even two and a half picks. One of them, one of my favorite authors is Tim Hartford. I basically adore anything he writes, broadcasts, anything. And his newest book, I don't know, about like nine months ago, as of when we're recording, is called The Data Detective. It has another name in the UK. I think it's like How to Make Sense of the World of Numbers. But in North America, it's published as a data detective. I think it's 10 or 12 ways to think about data and statistics to make sense of them. And he basically says, look, we're inundated with data nowadays. How can you decide what's right, what's not right? How can you sort of figure out, like, just some gut feeling, good rules for it? And it's full, full, full of fantastic stories that I would expect nothing less from Tim Hartford. Entertaining, easy to read, and might even convince you that statistics are not mind-numbingly boring, which they are not. The second thing is, so as I said, I've been using Twitter more and more, and I just recently stumbled across things which I had no idea existed on Twitter. One of them is the Twitter advanced search. So if you are searching for things, right, there's that search bar in the top right on Twitter, and you can search for things. But if you go to twitter.com slash search minus advanced, you can search for tweets with certain words, certain phrases, certain hashtags between certain dates from people to people. Huh. And then, better yet, you can save that search and make it available later on. So I now have, as part of my whole Twitter getting you know, responding to people thing, I have a safe search for Python or Pandas or data science written in the you know with at least uh, what ten likes and ten comments. And so if I run that once a day, I can see what are the latest Python related things, and bam, I can respond to those. I'm really excited to have discovered this. I mean, it's not new, but it's certainly new to me. And if you're interested in you know, boning up on your uh, Twitter stuff, that's definitely a good way to do it. And I guess that's a wrap for this time. Folks, if you have questions, comments, suggestions about what you'd like to hear on the show, please do get in touch with us via our show page. We would love to hear from you. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Business of Freelancing.